I am super excited uh, for this next season of our preaching. We're kicking off a brand new preaching series this week called We Are Jonah. Uh, and I am really psyched and really pumped about this next season together. We're going to spend about 11 weeks or so, about three months doing this together. Um, when I say I am excited and, and pumped, um, just to give you a sense of what that means or what that feels like, um, I'm a very, I think, even-keeled sort of guy, not too high highs or too low lows. In fact, when we found out that we were going to get this building, this $2 million property for free, uh, if you don't know that story, come talk with me and I'll tell it to you. Um, I was announcing it to the church and Shanu's like, could you please show some emotion? Because all you say is, we're getting this building. And then you look like that. And how's anyone supposed to know you're excited or that you're grateful to God? She said, could you at least shout hallelujah or something so people would know you're happy? So I don't get very high and low, but I'm telling you, I am really excited about this next season of preaching together. I just have great hope in the ability of God's word to do something great in our church for you as individuals, for us as a community and even for it to spill out to our city. So I have great hopes, big prayers for what God could do over these three months through the preaching of the word. I'm also excited because this is really our first crack at preaching through a book of the Bible in whole. So if you've been with us for any time from September on, you know that we preach every week. We preach from the scriptures. We've done a bunch of topics together, but we've sort of hopped from here to there and jumped around a bit. And those have been good. We've talked through the cross and we've gone through the scriptures as we've done that. But this will be our first shot at what will be our pattern, our norm for us, which is to just pick up a book of the Bible, start at chapter 1, verse 1, and keep going till we're done. So I'm really excited that we get to do that together as a church and we get to start doing that in this season. And I'm hoping that it will even give you wings for when you do this on your own, of, of picking a book of the Bible, starting at the first chapter and the first verse, and going till you're done. So to do all that, we are opening to the book of Jonah. Uh, for the next 11 weeks or so, we're working our way through the book of Jonah. You don't have to be ashamed about what you're going to have to do now, which is secretly, without anyone seeing, go to the front of your Bible and find the page number for where Jonah is. Uh, when Sibi and I met to prep this series, we have all these great hopes, we know the themes, and then we start looking for Jonah and we turn to each other and we're like, where is that again? It, which is very embarrassing. So since I've laid that out there, you can look at that first page and turn to page 774. It's in between Obadiah and Micah. You'll find the short Old Testament book of Jonah. One of the shortest in the Old Testament. Just four chapters, 48 verses. That's it. Though it is hard to find... It is very well-known. It's a, it's a really well-known story. Well-known to people who have grown up in the church, for sure, as you've heard it read as a kid or now read it to your kids. Well-known also to our culture, to our city. Most folks have some familiarity with this story. In fact, if I asked most of the folks in this church or folks in the city, tell me what you know about Jonah. If we, if we played the word association game and I said, Jonah you would shout back, whale, right? Most of the folks in our city would shout back, whale, because Jonah is the story of the man who got swallowed by a whale and lived to tell the tale. That's what Jonah is. We would say that the central character in this book is Jonah, and the supporting cast is played by this 
ten-ton beast, right? The, the supporting role is this great fish. So then it might surprise us to hear that neither is the case. That this story has at center stage someone else. That the spotlight of the book of Jonah is reserved for a different character. One British preacher named G. Campbell Morgan, he said this. He said, when it comes to Jonah, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. And I think that's right when it comes to Jonah. We have put all our focus in on this great fish that we miss the great God who is at center stage, who the spotlight is on when it comes to Jonah. In fact, if we were in an English class together, if this was Literature 101 and we were studying Jonah, as we work through it and analyze this story, we would best describe the fish as a prop. That's what the whale plays in Jonah. Jonah's whale is at best a prop on stage. And Jonah himself is what we'd probably call a foil. So if you've studied literature, you know that the foil is this character who's placed into the story to sort of highlight and contrast with the main character and the hero. When you look at a foil in a story, you're drawn all the more to the greatness of the main character because all the foil does is sort of highlight who you're really supposed to look at. That's what's happening in Jonah. Because as you keep looking at and staring at Jonah, he's supposed to sort of contrast the hero of the story who is God. And so what I want you to hear right off the bat is that there is much more to these four chapters, to this very familiar story than what meets the eye. One commentator has said it like this. He said, Jonah is perhaps the most widely known yet least understood book of the Bible. And so what we're doing over the next 11 weeks, what I am pumped and excited for us to do together, is to swim through this book over the next three months. Before we're done, we will have read every word, walked through every chapter, studied through every verse. And if that's sort of where we're headed, here's what I want us to do today. Today, if we're going to swim in these chapters in the weeks to come, today what I want to do is just sort of get our feet wet. I just want us to sort of stand by the shore, splash around a little bit, just get a feel for this book before we dive into its chapters next week. So today what I want to do is just let you stand back, look at the book as a whole, and get an overview for these four chapters. Hear this story and its major theme. Be introduced to its characters. Learn a little bit about the background of the letter or the book itself so that we are ready next week to, to plunge in. So that's going to be our prayer. Uh, we should have big prayers for these next three months together. Ask the Lord to do great things. Let me pray now, and then we'll consider Jonah together. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would do what only your word can do. We know that man's word is often ineffective or impotent or destructive at worst. But your word is altogether different. In Genesis 1, your word goes out and creates from nothing an entire universe. In Isaiah 55, you promise that your word will go out and it will accomplish what you sent it forth. It never returns to you void. We hear in John 11, Jesus speaking a word and from it a dead man comes to life. 
In Acts 2, the word goes out and 3,000 people are cut to the heart and they ask, what must we do to be saved? In Hebrews 4, we're told that the word is living and active, that it penetrates and pierces soul and spirit. We have great hope and faith in your word and we ask that you would send out your word. We ask that your word would go out and do some life-giving, resurrecting, convicting, fruit-bearing work in our hearts and souls. And let it begin here at Seven Mile Road and let it spill the banks into the city of Philadelphia. We come not to the wisdom of man. We are submitting ourselves under your word and we pray that in this coming season you would do great things as we submit to you and your word. Hear our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Jonah 1. I'm just reading the first two verses today. That's as far as we're going to get. Here's what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. In the very opening lines of Jonah, you are introduced to the major characters in the story. The next four chapters have an interplay between these three characters. You have Jonah, the missionary who has been called by God, the prophet who knows God, who has been called by God to a certain mission. You have Nineveh, who is unlike Israel. They are Gentile, they are pagan, they're part of an empire called Assyria. They are idol-worshipping idolaters, hell-bent, wicked city. And then you have the Lord, who has called this man to mission, who is calling this prophet to go to this wicked city so that he could show mercy upon them. So that's, that's the three major characters we're going to see over and over again over these next few weeks. So today what I want to do is sort of, again, give you a broad look. I want to picture sort of a plane flying 10,000 feet high and just getting a survey of the whole land before we hit the ground next week running. So we're going to mine through these chapters and verses. This week, we're, we're sort of getting a big look, a survey of the land, flying at an altitude of 10,000 feet so we can get a survey of Jonah as a whole. And right off the bat, if you're going to do any serious study of Jonah, if you're going to do any serious thinking of Jonah and how it connects to your life, one of the questions you've got to address right off the bat is how are we going to see this book? How are we supposed to understand this book? I mean, you just consider the story and one of the first questions our city would ask is, is this story real? I mean, what are you to do with the fact that this story is a man who gets into the digestive tract of a great fish, survives there three days and then is spit back out? What are you supposed to do with this story? And I want you to know that Christians who love the Lord have wrestled with this throughout the centuries, throughout the generations about how to understand the book of Jonah. And so some say, listen, what you have here in these four chapters is a parable, right? It, it's not true. It didn't really happen, but that's not the point. It tells you a lesson. It gives you a, a moral. It serves a point. Like, like we know that when Jesus talked about the Good Samaritan, there was no robbery that happened along the way. When he talked about the hundred sheep and the one that got lost, there were no hundred sheep. He's telling a parable. He's making a point. That's what Jonah is. Some have said, no, no, it's not a parable. It's better seen as an allegory. So if you know what an allegory is, you know that every part of the story represents something else. And when you read Jonah, you're supposed to think of what it points to. So Jonah, for example, represents Israel. 
And in some ways, I want to agree with that. Jonah represents Israel, and then the whale represents Babylon. So if you know the story, you know Israel was taken into exile by Babylon. And so just like Babylon swallowed up Jonah, I mean, Israel so the whale swallowed up Jonah. Everything points to something. The plant represents this guy named Zerubbabel. The worm represents something. The sun represents something. And pretty soon you're sort of goofy and everything represents something else, but nothing has anything to do with Jonah. Throughout the church's history, I want you to hear that the majority view has been to see this book as history. To see this book as a true story. That there really was a man named Jonah. That there really was a city named Nineveh. That this story really did happen. And, and I want you to hear that for the church that by and large has felt this way, believed this way, there's good reason. You're in good company if you do that. Because I think that's the way that Jesus saw the story of Jonah. That Jesus talked about the story of Jonah in the Gospels, and when he did, he talked of it as it were real. So I need you to hear that. Jonah really was a person. We know that. He really was a prophet from Israel in about the 8th century. Nineveh really was a city in the kingdom and empire of Assyria, what would be today modern-day Iraq. In fact, we have artifacts from the city of Nineveh dating as far back as the day of Jonah from the 8th century even to this day. So if you go to England and you go to the British Museum, they have monuments from the city of Nineveh. In fact, one of their monuments even tells the story of an older king named Jehu who had given a tribute to Assyria, something you find in the scriptures. And they have a monument of that very story in the British Museum. So Nineveh really was a real city. Jonah was really a real man. And when Jesus speaks of Jonah and Nineveh, he speaks of them as though they were real, as though this whole story were real. In fact, listen to what he says in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, some people come to Jesus, and this is what he says. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So here's what's happening. You've got some Pharisees and scribes, some people who come to Jesus, and they go, give us a sign so we can really believe in you, so we know who you, you are, who you say you are. And Jesus responds and says, you wicked, adulterous generation, no sign's going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And then he says, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, or the great fish, so also the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And just as Jonah was spit back into the land of the living, so the Son of Man will be spit back into the land of the living. Jesus is saying, listen, just as Jonah's three days was real and he came back to life, 
so also the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we'll talk about the actual time of 72 hours or what the Jews really meant. But so also will the Son of Man be spit back to the land of the living. And then he even gives a warning to his generation. He says, listen, when Jonah went to that real city and they really repented, those men will rise up in judgment against you because someone greater than Jonah is speaking to you and you're not repenting. So he's, he's not pointing to a fable and saying, listen, those made up people will stand up in judgment over you. He's saying the city of Nineveh repented and they will rise up as witnesses against you because someone better than Jonah is standing right here and you will not repent. So for, for those of us who see Jonah as a real city, a real man sent to a real city and a real story, you are in the best of company is what I want to say. Because I really think Jesus saw the story that way. And, and here's some advice for those of us that will still struggle with that. Because we, we live in the 21st century. We still live in Philadelphia. We, we live in a culture that will say, no way. When you come across parts of the Bible that are like this, where you go, how are we supposed to understand this? The advice I've gotten is start from the inside and work your way out. Start from the inside and work your way out. Here's how most of us judge the veracity, the truthfulness of the Bible. We start on the periphery and then we work our way in. So we start with Jonah and the whale. Could that have happened? And then we work our way in. I want to challenge you to start from the inside, which is what are you going to do with the resurrection? Start there because that's the heart of the Bible. And if a man said he would die and come back from the dead, and if he did what he said he did, validating everything else he said then you can believe the rest. But if the resurrection is bogus, then the rest of it is bogus. So start with the heart. If Jesus did come back from the grave as he said he did and said he would and validated everything else he said, then his opinion about everything matters, including his opinion about Jonah. But if that doesn't matter, the periphery doesn't matter either. So, so here's what we're saying, and I'm hoping as you struggle with it, you'll land with me in saying that when we read these four chapters, we're hearing a real man sent to a real city, a real story about a great God who brought out a man from the belly of a fish just like he would later bring out a man from the heart of the earth. A man who was three days dead in the heart of the earth came back, spit back to life. So also this story shadows that and begins to give us lenses to see that. So when you're in Jonah... You're in a real story. You're in history. You're in historical narrative. And then if you can take that and you start looking through these four, four chapters, in our Bibles you can see it on just one opening of the page. These four chapters, what you'll notice is that when you get to Jonah, it looks very different than the books that surround it. So when you're in Jonah, you're in a genre called prophetical narrative or in the books of the prophets. And what you begin to notice is Jonah is laid out very different than the books that surround it. For example, if you turn left to Obadiah and just look at how the page is laid out, or you turn right and look at Micah, if you keep flipping to the left or to the right, you're going to see that the prophetic books have a certain look about them. And that's because the prophetic books were by and large prophecies. You've got maybe one or two lines of narrative in the very first chapter, and then the rest of the book is written in that weird way because it's prophecy, it's oracles from God. And immediately, just by sight, you can see 
that Jonah is different. Because for Jonah, the prophetic message is not the bulk of the book. Rather, the story of the prophet is the bulk of the book. For Jonah, his actual prophetic message is one half of one verse. You've got four chapters, 48 verses. In chapter 3, verse 4, for one half of one verse, you have Jonah's actual message. The rest of the book is narrative. You've got five Hebrew words for what Jonah's prophecy actually is because the rest of the book is a good, long, sustained look as the prophet himself. And so when you're in Jonah, you're treated to something that you don't get in the other books. We don't know much about Amos the prophet or Nahum the prophet or Micah the prophet, but you get a mouthful when it comes to Jonah. You get a good, long look at this prophet and his life. So what do we know about Jonah? If that's some background of the book itself, what's some background that we know about Jonah, the man himself, the prophet who this book is about? For many who are familiar with the story, it might surprise you to hear that Jonah is not the first place where we're introduced to this prophet. Jonah 1 verse 1 is not the first time Jonah appears in the scriptures. In fact, Jonah first appears in the passage that Jim read for us in 2 Kings. So if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Kings 14. We're looking again at verses 23 to 28. 2 Kings 14, 23 to 28. This is Jonah's arrival scene in the scriptures. Hear it as you turn there. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. All right, let me just give you some quick background so that we can keep reading and you make sense of it. Israel was one kingdom under a king named David, whose prayer we read before when we were giving. His son Solomon, they ruled over one nation called Israel. After them, their sons ruled in such a way that the kingdom was split. And so now you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. One nation Israel into two kingdoms, northern Israel, southern Judah. And in the north, you have this succession of wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. It starts with this king named Jeroboam, who instead of worshiping the Lord who had made him king, sets up these two golden calves and leads the nation into idolatry and sin. And when you pick up the story in 2 Kings 14, it's this succession of kings that have ruled just like him. So now you come to a king named Jeroboam, who is a grandson, grandson, grandson of the first Jeroboam. And here's what it says, verse 24. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, that's the first one, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And then listen to what happens during his 41 years. Verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So here's what you have. You have Joash the sec- I mean Jeroboam II, who's ruling from about 782 to 7. 
53, so 8th century. He's ruling over the northern kingdom of Israel. And during his 41 years as he's reigning, here's what happens. He expands the borders and boundaries of Israel so that Israel actually grows in size back to the days of David and Solomon. So Israel is blessed by God, saved by God. God is gracious and merciful to Israel so that they grow and take over more land. They beef up their northern boundaries against potential attack from Nineveh and Assyria. But when is all of that happening? It's happening when Israel is neck deep in sin. What did it say? Jeroboam was in sin and did not turn away from the sins of his forefathers. They were idol-worshipping, sinful idolaters. Israel was a mess, and yet in that time, the Lord had sent a message, verse 27, that he would not blot them out, but he would save them. He would be gracious to them. And guess who gets to deliver that message of mercy? Jonah, the prophet from Gath Hepper, three miles northeast of Nazareth, gets to deliver this message of mercy. So that when you get to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. The first readers who are reading Jonah are not sort of scratching their head going, Jonah, 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 who's Jonah? No, rather they're going, Jonah! Our boy Jonah has another message. Let's listen up because the last time he spoke, our kingdom expanded. Because Jonah's the one who firsthand got to deliver the message that God was going to be merciful to a nation that was in sin. You think of that. Jonah got to be the mouthpiece by which God showed his mercy to a people who did not deserve mercy. Jonah saw firsthand the heart of God, the compassion of God to save a people that did not deserve saving. To redeem a people that he should have blotted out. And it's only when you get that background that you then get what is happening in this book then? That you then get how puzzling is the story of Jonah? Because when you get to Jonah, everything is different. When you get to the book of Jonah, suddenly it's different. One pastor described the book of Jonah like the movie Sixth Sense. Right? So if you've seen Sixth Sense, you know you're watching through the whole movie. And all along you're doing what? You're making certain assumptions about the movie and what you think is happening. And it's not till that last half hour or so that you go, oh my goodness, nothing is happening the way that I thought. And, and suddenly that last half hour gives you a new sense for the hour and a half that preceded. And you can never watch that movie the same way again because now when you watch it, you go, oh, that's why she didn't speak to him and that's why he was silent at that time and, and you suddenly piece everything together different. That's the way the book of Jonah works. Because when you read Jonah for the very first time, you begin to make certain assumptions about what's happening. And it's not till you get to chapter 4 that everything turns. So, so picture yourself reading Jonah for the first time. Here's how the story starts. Chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go to Nineveh, that great wicked city, because its sin has come to me. And then you read, as we'll look into next week, that Jonah responds by running. God had called him one way, 
Jonah runs. And so you read the story and you're not told why, and so you begin to make certain assumptions about the text. If you're reading this for the first time, you think to yourself, it's probably because Jonah's scared, right? That's what I would think. If God had just said, go to Nineveh, a city we'll talk about in the weeks to come, a wicked city, a city known for how brutally it treated its enemies. I mean, they were creative in the way they tortured people. A city we know hates Israel. A city we know had come and attacked Israel. If you've got all that in your mind, you go, yeah, Jonah's got to be scared. That's why he's run when God called him to Nineveh. And so you keep reading the story that way and you go, I, I can get that. I know what it's like to be intimidated by a mission that God has called me to. I know what it's like to be intimidated by the city that God has sent me on mission to. And so there's something in you that sort of feels for Jonah because you go, I, I, I get that. But then you get to chapter 4. Because in chapter 3, you find that Jonah has actually gone to Nineveh. He's preached the message God called him to preach. Nineveh has actually repented. This wicked city has humbled itself before Yahweh, the desert god of the Israelites. Everything is good. And so you'd expect Jonah 4 to be, and Jonah rejoiced in God and headed home for Israel. Except you read Jonah 4, and you read that Jonah is angry enough to die. In fact, that's what he says to God. He says, take my life and just put me to death. I am so angry. And you go, why Jonah? And Jonah says, because I knew you were going to show mercy to the Ninevites. And you almost have to laugh. Jonah's complaint to God is, I knew you're gracious and merciful and loving and compassionate. And I knew you were going to save those hell-bound Ninevites. And that's when it clicks. Jonah hates the city that God has called him on mission to. The city that God has called him on mission to is going to go to hell, and Jonah could not care less. And then you find out that Jonah runs not because he's afraid he's going to fail. Jonah runs because he knows he's going to succeed. Jonah runs because he could not care less about the city that God had called him to. You read the book of Jonah and you think this is a story about Jonah and the wicked pagan city that is opposing him. Except you discover that this is a story about God and the one opposing him is Jonah. You, you read this story and you think the major obstacle to overcome is the idol-worshipping, lost, wicked city. And then you discover that the major obstacle to overcome is the religious missionary prophet. You read the story and you think the problem here is with the idol-worshipping pagans and you realize the problem here is with the prophet, not the pagans. And pretty soon, as you read this book, you begin to see this story is as much about God pursuing His people as it is Him pursuing the city. You read the story and you discover this is as much about God pursuing a religious, self-righteous, racist, exclusivist people who are all for grace for themselves but could not care less that the city around them is going to go to hell. And this story is as much about God 
pleading after and pursuing and chasing his people to change their heart as he is chasing the wicked city. The prophet is as lost as the pagans. The missionary has as many idols in his own heart that he's running from God as the city around him, as the city and the pagans to which he is called. If I showed you this book from 10,000 feet and gave you some of the big themes you're going to see, you're going to see that you have a merciful God. A God whose heart is overflowing the banks with mercy and compassion, who wants to save a people who do not deserve to be saved. And this God wants to show to Nineveh, the wicked city, the same mercy he showed to Israel during the reign of Jeroboam. Jonah had seen with his own eyes God blessing a people that didn't deserve to be blessed. And he wants to do that to Nineveh. He wants to do that to the pagans. A God whose mercy is great. A God who would rightly blot out Nineveh. Just wipe it away because they're hell-bound, wicked, sexually perverse, idolatrous people. And yet, God wants to show them mercy. And so he calls Jonah. He calls the ones who are his people, who gather before him. The ones who have his word, who know the scriptures. He, he calls the prophet who is his missionary, who he's poured out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And he calls him to be a part of his plan to show mercy to the city. And Jonah wants nothing to do with it. You're not going to find a greater contrast between the heart of God than the heart of Jonah. Right? God wants to save this people. Jonah wants them to burn. God sends his missionary into this city. Jonah runs from the mission he's been called to. Jonah, God loves this pagan people. Jonah hates them. God loves the city. Jonah could not care less. As you read through this story, it's a great story. But I hope what you begin to see as you're reading through these four chapters is somehow the Holy Spirit is sort of bringing up a mirror to your face. And as you read this story, you begin to go, this sounds awfully familiar. This is way close to home. Because here's what you see in Jonah. Here's this guy who has received immense grace in his own life, but does not care that anyone else should receive it. Here's this guy that God has called him in one direction and he's running in an opposite direction. Here's this guy who knows all about God and yet all that knowledge has not translated into any difference in his life. So that when he's on the sea and the pagans who are with him on the boat say, who are you? He says, I'm a Hebrew who worships the God who made land and sea. If your God made land and sea, why are you trying to run from him on the sea? He's got all this knowledge and yet none of that has translated to any difference in his life. Here's this guy who God has called him to share good news with his city, with this city of people who look nothing like him because God wants to bring them in also and he could not care less. He wants nothing to do with it. Here's this guy who is all for grace and compassion for himself and for other people who look like him. Think of that. When the pagans ask him on the boat, as you'll see in chapter 2, or at the end of chapter 1, who are you? The first thing that comes out of his mouth, I'm a Hebrew. And, and when God calls him to give this mercy message to his own people, he's all for it. 
He strolls into town and tells them, God's going to bless us and our people. So if you're Jewish, if you're Hebrew, Jonah's all for you. But when God wants to deliver that message to a people that are of a different culture, a different race, a different religion, who are going to come in on this mercy too, he wants none of it. Because I'm all for talking grace with people that look like me and people that have my background and my story and my narrative and, and my culture. And I hate the idea that outsiders are going to come in and spoil what we've got going here. Here's this guy who is so self-righteous and proud that he does not see the idols in his own heart but can pick them out when he sees them in the city. I mean, you, you look through the book of Jonah and, and the storm doesn't come because of the pagans. The storm comes because of the religious guy. And when you look through the book of Jonah, everyone's getting the message except one guy, Jonah. Everyone sees their sin except one guy. The religious prophet, the missionary. God's missionary is the only guy who misses the point. As you see this book, I hope you begin to see what's happening around us. I hope you begin to ask, wait, who are we still talking about? Are we still talking about Jonah? Because this sounds awfully close to home. I read this week that the Jewish people had a custom on the Day of Atonement. So on that one great holiday of the year where they would gather to confess their sins to God, one of their practices was to read through the book of Jonah. And when they finished, in unison, they would shout, We are Jonah. That's how they'd respond to the book. And I hope Seven Mile Road, as we go through these 11 weeks and these four chapters, you say the same thing. We are Jonah. Rebellious missionaries with our own pet idols who have been called to a sinful city by a merciful God. We are Jonah. This story is our story. So here's what I want to close with. I have four prayers going into these 11 weeks, into these three months. They all start with R so that hopefully you could remember them and you could pray them with me. And, and I'm, I'm pleading with you to pray with me even this week as we get ready to do this series. One, I'm praying for repentance. I'm praying for repentance. As you go through the story of Jonah, the most ironical thing, here's the great irony. The pagans in the boat, repent. The pagans in the city, repent. Everybody, everywhere is repenting except one person. The only person you never see repent is Jonah. And it's sort of like the bush, book is, is pushing you to say, when is the prophet going to repent? When is he going to see his idols? When is he going to tear his clothes like Nineveh did and repent? When is he going to confess the racism in his heart? When is he going to confess that he wants nothing to do with God's mercy? When is he going to confess that he hasn't fully gotten the gospel, which is why he doesn't want the gospel to spread to anyone else? When will the religious person repent? So I'm begging God that before our city repents, that Seven Mile Road would repent. I've read of stories of churches that were being started hundreds of years ago, denominations. And, and when they gathered, the spirit would just fall so that for like two hours, people would just weep 
and repent of their sin. Nobody could explain what was happening. It wasn't because someone prodded something emotionally for them or said something. The Spirit of God would just fall and they would begin to weep over their sins. I have no idea how God could do it here. But I'm really begging God, not because I say something clever or can pluck at your heartstrings. I'm praying that God would send His Spirit and expose our idols and expose our sin, expose the fact that we could not care less about the city around us and we would repent. That before the city rips their clothes and humbles themselves and fasts, that God would bring a spirit that causes us to repent and fast and confess our sins and turn to God. So I'm praying for repentance. Second, I'm praying that God would ruin our comfort. I'm praying that God would ruin our comfort. This is struck so close to home for me. When you read the four chapters of Jonah, what you get is a guy who is all for talking about the grace of God all day long with people that are just like him. So the Hebrews, the Jewish people, he could sing with them, he could pray with them, he could talk with them, he could celebrate God's grace with them. But when God wants that grace to extend the boundaries that he's comfortable with and bring in people to the party that he wants nothing to do with, he bails. And I want to say, I love what God is doing at Seven Mile Road. I really do. But it is really comfortable. It, it can be really comfortable here to be around people that are your age, your culture, your background, your education. There's just a lot of similar people here. And we could be for grace all day long. We could love a series on the cross so that we could keep talking about the grace of God to us and hate the idea that God might want to bring people from this city that look nothing like the people gathered here with different backgrounds and different religions and different races and different cultures and different stories. And, and, and we could continue for the next five or ten years huddling around race or ethnicity or culture or, or socioeconomic class and we could build this thing around so much other than the gospel. But if we built it around the gospel, then everybody's invited to the table. So I'm begging God to begin to ruin our comfort. I'm also praying for revival in our city. If Nineveh really is a real place, and if Assyria really was as bad as in the weeks to come, I'm going to tell you they were, then Jonah chapter 3 says that revival broke out in the city, a real city, so that it says, from the least of them to the greatest, everybody started weeping and confessing their sins. The idol worshipers turned to Yahweh so that news of it spread to the king and he ordered that the whole city fast. So here's my question. Is there anything in you that believes that that could happen to the city that God has called us to? Is there anything in you that believes that revival could break out in northeast Philadelphia and spread to Center City and make its way to North Philly and down to South Philly so that word of it could even reach Mayor Nutter and so that news of this would spread. And I'll tell you, my heart struggles to believe. And yet I'm praying that the gospel that was strong in Jonah 3 is still as strong today so that God could actually change our city. And lastly, I'm praying that we would recognize the heart of God. So I'm praying for repentance. I'm praying God would ruin our comfort. 
I'm asking you to pray with me for revival in our city, and I'm praying that we would recognize and realize the heart of God. God wants to save Nineveh. And I, I want you to hear this, because we say it all the time, and I'm, I'm asking, that's what I'm doing, I'm praying that God would make us believe it. God loves Philadelphia. If you're honest, maybe you would even say, I don't give a rip about this city. I really do not care. And, and if you're honest, that's where you'll start. And that's where you'll say, Lord, you've got to change my heart because no pep talk is going to do that. I can't psych myself into loving these people. I just do not care as long as I go to heaven and the people around me do too. As long as we have good Bible studies and good things that we can attend, I'm really good here. And you've got to begin to say, God, your heart is different than that. I know it is. Because my heart looks like Jonah, and I know Jonah's heart looked different than yours, so my heart looks different than yours. You really love Philadelphia. And there's not a fiber of my being that does that, so would you give that into my heart? Would you help me to see that your heart is so much bigger than mine? And would you help me to see that your mercy is for people who are religious and irreligious, because we're just as equally lost? So I have great hopes for what God could do in these 11 weeks. And I'm pleading with you to pray with me that we are Jonah, but that we too would have a really good story because this is a good story that points to a great Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, in the New Testament, you went to a father and were about to heal his boy and you asked him, do you believe? And he honestly said to you, I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't know of a more honest prayer for me and I suspect for this church and for my brothers and sisters than, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. So with that honest confession, we pray that you would bring about repentance at Seven Mile Road, that you would let it start here even before we expect you to have it start in the city that you would show us that we have not fully grasped the gospel, that you would show us the idols that we turn to, that you would show us our self-righteousness, our racism, our exclusivism, that you would show us our hypocrisy that is all for grace for us while we do not care for our city. We pray that you would bring repentance. Throughout church history, revival has never happened without repentance preceding. We can't force your hand. We just plead with your hand and we trust your sovereignty. We pray also that you would ruin our comfort. Lord, let what people gravitate to here be more than culture, be more than ethnicity, be more than language, be more than social class. Let what holds the people here together be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it is that, it will draw our city. We pray also that you would help us to recognize the heart of God, that it is very different than our heart, that it longs for our city, and that you would change our hearts from ourselves and Jonah's heart to God's heart. And we pray for our city. We trust that the word of God could go out here and bring revival. We trust that you could cause the gospel to go forth from the least to the greatest of the city so that the rulers themselves might hear the climate of this city changing 
because of the spreading of the gospel. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.